Last week, uh, Pastor Mangrum started our series um, on the character of Moses. And I understand he began by asking you what comes to mind when you think of Moses. The first image that comes to mind, and maybe it's Cecil, DeMille, Cecil B. DeMille or you know Charlton Heston or something like that. Uh, somebody told me this morning the first thing that comes to mind when they think of Moses is Moses is the only guy they knew of that broke all the Ten Commandments at one time. Uh, see, some of you got it, some of you didn't. Came down the mountain and threw them down and broke them all at once. When I think of Moses, I don't think of this ring in the back of me, but it sounds like I'm on the mountain or something. Can you hear that? There, you can't hear that? There, yeah, somebody can. It's gone now. <clears throat> really, it wasn't in my head. I saw a couple of you confirm that. When I think of Moses, I think of the sermon title this morning, actually, Reluctant Prophet. Because you see that in the passage we just read. I also think of Moses in terms of a reluctant prophet because I understand him. I'm a reluctant pastor. As many of you know, I didn't want to be here to begin with. I wanted to try anything I could besides being pastor. Thankfully, my story is not identical to Moses because I didn't kill somebody on my way to try to figure out who I was. And I don't have all the miracles associated with Moses. But I became, reluctantly, a pastor because God blocked the way everywhere else and refused to allow me to do anything else and finally drew my heart to this vocation. So I think at least at one level, I understand him. But to tell the story of Moses, we want to step back from chapter 3 to remind you of chapter 2 and to learn some lessons. In chapter 2, you'll recall that Moses finds his identity somehow. We don't know exactly how. We know he was born in the, in the community of Israel. And then he was delivered by his mother to a wicker basket in the Nile and was rescued and then he was raised in Pharaoh's house. But somewhere along the way, maybe all along the way, Moses began to understand who he was. And when it became fully clear to him who he was on one particular occasion, he's watching the Egyptian beat an Israelite, one of Moses' people. And anger flares up in him, and he says, I can't stand it any longer. So he strikes the Egyptian. How we don't know, but he kills him. He kills him, and he worries that someone's going to find out. He looks this way and that, the text says, and then he buries the Egyptian in the sand. Following that, on another day, two Israelis are fighting with each other. And Moses approaches them and says, why are you fighting brother on brother like this? As a matter of fact, that's just not the right thing to do. And the one Israeli looks at him and says, what are you going to do? Kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Moses knew he'd been had. At that point, he knew the news was out. And he heard that Pharaoh wanted him dead. So he ran from the land of Egypt. He went to the backside of the desert. As the text says, he went to Midian. And for 40 years, he was in exile. He found a wife, he found a new vocation, and God shaped him. Now that's the first part of the adult life of Moses. The second part of the adult life of Moses comes in this passage, chapter 3. He's doing what he thinks he can do and all he can do. 
which is to be a shepherd on the backside of the desert. And on one particular occasion, on what was an otherwise ordinary day, he sees a bush aflame. But the flame doesn't consume the bush. And a voice comes from the bush, and it says, Moses, that'll wake you up. No ordinary day now. A bush is talking, and the fire doesn't burn the bush. And furthermore, it's God. And the voice comes from God and says, Moses, it's time for you to take a change of life, a new vocation. I'm calling you after 40 years of being a shepherd to shepherd my people, to lead my people out of captivity because I've heard the cry all the way up in heaven. It's so oppressive, I've come down to deliver them, and I'm going to use you. You know what Moses' response is? Who am I? No, sorry, God, but you got the wrong guy. Why are you calling me? Moses gets this response from God. He says, I'm calling you, and here's going to be proof that I call you. Once you go to Egypt and deliver the people, you're going to come back and worship me on this mountain. Now, pardon me, if I'm Moses, I'm saying, that's really not that helpful. That's like way out there in the distance. You're promising me something I can't see, calling me to something I don't think I can do. So Moses, after hearing that answer, responds to God again. And he says, but Lord, first of all, I don't know why you're picking me, but second of all, if I am to go to those people... Who am I supposed to say sent me? Who am I supposed to say? You know they're going to ask God. I'm a shepherd out here in the middle of nowhere. They want to know. And God says, you tell them, I am sent you. Moses seemed to accept um, that declaration of who God is. But still he's uncertain. He says to God, okay, God, I have the message. Say I am has sent you, but what if they don't believe me? Any old shepherd can say any old thing. Suppose I say it and they say, I don't believe you. Then what am I supposed to do, God? By the way, this is the third time that Moses has questioned are objected to God's plan. What if they don't believe me, God? God says, it's very simple, Moses. You're going to throw down some signs. Give me that staff. Throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. It turns into a serpent. He says, don't retreat from it. Reach out, pick it up. When he picks it up, it turns back into a staff. Then he says, put your hand inside your cloak. He puts it inside his cloak. He pulls it out and becomes leprous. He said, put it back in. He puts it in and pulls it out, and it's completely clean. Then God says to him, that's what you're supposed to do. They don't believe you. And if they don't believe you after those two signs, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a pitcher, and I want you to go down to the Nile River, and I want you to dip into the Nile River and take the water out. Then I want you to take it up to dry land, and I want you to pour it onto dry land. And when you pour out that water, it will be blood. That's what you do 
when they questioned whether or not God sent you. You would think that after that, Moses would be done, but he's not. He brings up a fourth objection. He says, Lord, I'm not eloquent. You gave me what to say. You told me why I was going. You told me that I was chosen. But you know what's going to happen when they ask me the second question? It's going to be, I can't talk, God. I get tongue-tied. When you put me in the crosshairs, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. You got the wrong guy. And the Lord says, Moses, who made your mouth, your tongue? Who made anybody's mouth or tongue? I did, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to be the words in your mouth. Just go speak, Moses. Now get this. This is the fifth objection. Moses basically says, I can't do it, God. And God's wrath burns against him. He's very angry. He says, I'm sending Aaron, you whining human being who won't listen to what I'm telling you. I'm sending Aaron. And I'm going to put words in your mouth, and you're going to put them on his lips, and he's going to speak for you. He'll be your mouthpiece. You'll be like God to him. After this, God says, in effect, have you heard enough? There's my plan. Go. So Moses goes. He meets Aaron in the desert. He tells Aaron the story that God told him. Aaron is bolstered because of the miraculous signs that are right around the horizon, and they agree they will go. They'll go first and meet with the elders of Israel. So they go to meet with the elders of Israel. When they arrive to meet with the elders of Israel, you'll notice in the text they had to use the signs. Apparently the elders did want to know why and who and who had sent him and what authority he had. So Moses used the sign and it bolstered the, the resolve of those people of Israel called the elders and they said, go, do it. So Moses and Aaron, they go before the king, King Pharaoh, and they say, sir, we have a command from God. The command from God is, we want you to let our people go to go out into the desert for three days and sacrifice to our God. That's a curious way to begin this. God doesn't say to Pharaoh, I want to take all these people away from you forever. I want to create the most spectacular thing called an exodus like the world's never seen. He just says that, and Pharaoh says, are you kidding me? I don't know if you ever noticed, but kings don't take lightly to commands. They do the commanding. They don't take commands. And so Moses and Aaron, old men, show up to this probably young Pharaoh king to command him in the name of God to let the people out for a period of time. And the king says, just be quiet. Here's why. You're whining. And the reason you're whining is because you don't have enough work to do. All those people out there are lazy. I'm going to throw it down now. You go back to them, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them work and make as many bricks as they've always made, except now I won't give them the straw to do it with. You can't do bricks without straw. 
You're going to have to find the stubble yourself. You're going to have to scrap around in the yard. You're going to have to go as far as you can to find stuff to make your bricks and still make as many as you always did. And so the people of Israel did it. And the foremans and the leaders of Israel were overwhelmed. As a matter of fact, they got so overwhelmed, they got up the, well, the boldness to go to Pharaoh themselves. They went to Pharaoh and they said, sir, this is just unrealistic. We can't build these bricks, not without the straw. You're making us do the same thing. You're punishing us for not having a quota. You're not being fair. Can you please? Pharaoh bursts forth and says, you're a bunch of lazy bums. Go back to work and still produce the bricks. You know what the elders do? They leave Pharaoh's presence, and the first people they encounter is Moses and Aaron. Would you like to have been Moses and Aaron at that point? See, they had all these promised signs, and now there's this significant revolt that's about to happen. God had given them all these wonderful signs to use, and they're starting to use them in front of Pharaoh. And now the people's work is harder. I wonder what that day was like in the life of Moses and Aaron. Well, it's at that point that God says, okay, game on. That was round one. There's some more to come. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you, through me, to strike them with some plagues. And here's the plagues I want you to strike them with. I want you to begin with water to blood. I want you to take your staff and touch the Nile, and it will turn into blood. That water, which formerly they used for their livestock to drink and to water their plants, will become blood. So he goes to Pharaoh, promises, and does it. And you know what happens? The Egyptian magicians, they do the same thing. That must have been a deal killer. Moses must have thought to himself, what's this all about, God? The next plague he says to throw down is the plague of the frogs. I'm going to put so many frogs in this land, and they're going to be dying everywhere, and they're going to be mounds of frogs, and it's going to stink and reek to high heaven. I'm going to create frogs. They're going to come from nowhere. The magicians do the same thing. And then finally, there's this thing called the plague of the gnats. He said, I want you to strike the dust of the ground with your staff. And when you do that, gnats are going to rise up from the ground, and they're going to be everywhere. But I want to make sure you understand something. This time, things are different. The gnats are only going to be in Egypt. They're not going to be back in Goshen where your people live. And when he did that, the Egyptians, they decided they'd try the same trick, and it didn't work. And the magicians went to King Pharaoh and said, Sir, we can't reproduce this one. This is the hand of God. You better get serious. You better let them go. You see, these people understood one thing, power. And God understood that one thing and demonstrated it. And from there out, there's a succession of plagues. They've got flies. They've got plague called boils. They've got plagues called hail and locusts and darkness. Nine plagues in all before the firstborn comes. What's interesting about this narrative, among other things, is that throughout the narrative, God had predicted ahead of time that Moses would deliver the plagues to Pharaoh and his heart would be hardened. And sometimes the word is 
God hardened his heart. But you know, he never told Moses how many plagues there were going to be before the last one. Moses had no idea how many times he would attempt to throw down the mighty hand of God and see Pharaoh say, no. He had to patiently endure God's timing. And God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he did. Now that's an overview of the story. The question is, in that overview, what is there to learn about God and ourselves? Many things. But I want to leave you with three words. With lots of thoughts under the three words. The first word is humility. If you're going to be used by God, this story of Moses says you're going to have to be humble. Because when God uses us, he frequently breaks us down to prepare us for service. Frequently, the dramatic events that God introduces into our lives, they're preceded by the mundane, the ordinary. And when we get to our absolute lowest, then it seems that God is ready to use us. Did you notice this? Probably you didn't because you weren't studying the text all week like I was. Moses spent one full third of his life on the backside of the desert. He died when he was 120. And 40 of those years were spent in exile. That's a long time of nothing. God brought him all the way down in order to be able to use him. But I want you to notice something else about this story of humility. God brought him all the way down until he felt as though he was nothing. And then when he repeatedly said to God, God, you've got the wrong man because I'm nothing. God let it go only so far. And then he struck out in anger, in effect saying, I do want to humble you. I do want you to understand you are nothing. But don't you go so low as to despise my handiwork. I chose you. Nothing as you are. And that nothing is going to be great. It's amazing how God handles us. We think we understand it. We get down really base low and we start being, well, we start speaking of ourselves as though we're not even in the image of God anymore. And God says, stop it. I'm going to take that nothing and make it something. Don't defame my image. So if you're going to be used by God, humility is necessary. The second thing that's necessary to be used by God according to these stories is patience. Moses had to wait a long time during the plagues. We don't know exactly how long. 
But what we know is that in that period of time, and especially in the period of time of 40 years, there were long moments of silence. You know, long moments of silence do not indicate the absence of God. Not for those who are following God. Those long moments of silence indicate a place, a time, a pressure cooker where God is actually shaping us. Don't think for a moment that the long moments of silence mean God's absence. They mean his real presence. That's why it takes patience. There's something else about patience in this story. God's presence does not guarantee immediate results. You see that over and over in the life of Moses. He throws down a plague, and he expects God to come through, and God doesn't. He throws down another, and it's repeated nine times. And it happens even before that when he puts it in front of the people of Israel, and they revolt. God's presence does not necessarily mean you will find immediate results. So you've got to have patience. And what's utterly clear is that God's plan comes according to God's timing, right? That requires patience as well. Because according to our timetable, God is always too late. Don't you think? Most of the time, according to our timetable, he's always too late. So in order to be used by God, these stories tell us we need humility, we need patience, and third, we need surrender. When Moses got to the point of complete surrender, basically his words were these, Lord, here I am, full of doubt, and scared out of my life, but ready to serve. And God said, I've got you just where I want you. Because when you're that full of doubt, you realize that nothing can happen for your own strength. When you're that frightened, you rely completely on God. And when you're willing, God will do something. So you've got to be at the point of surrender in order to be used by God. You know, God decides who he's going to use and how he's going to use them. And sometimes it may be us, and other times it may be someone else that we think is an inappropriate instrument of God's grace. That we think is not up to the calling or that we might wish it was us that God had chosen. But God is sovereign. He chooses who he will. He doesn't need any of us, but he chooses us, just as he chose Moses. Surrender is inseparably linked, I think, from an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. You will not completely surrender 
until you fully submit to the sovereignty of God. To put it in the words of Psalm 115, God is in his heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Or to put it in the words of Isaiah chapter 55, my ways, that is God's ways, are above your ways. They're higher than your ways, higher than your thoughts. You can't even understand them. That's a description of God's sovereignty. And for hundreds and even thousands of years, the church has spilled all kinds of ink and unfortunately a lot of blood over the definition of God's sovereignty. Words like predestination and free will and sovereignty. And even the best definitions, whatever you choose them to be, even the best definitions, in my opinion, are a limitation of God's sovereignty. Because his thoughts and his ways are so high and so far above us, the issue is not the definition of sovereignty. The issue is whether or not you will surrender to his sovereignty. And God calls Moses to surrender. You know what's fascinating about this story of surrender? The first thing you might think of is negative. Surrender sounds negative. We lose ourselves. We become nothing. The reality is, listen to the story. Surrender is the vehicle, the doorway, the pathway to freedom. It's not until Moses completely surrenders to God, until the people completely surrender to God, until they have their backs against the wall at the Red Sea, until they realize there's nothing else to do but bow down and say, God, you're sovereign, do with me what you will. It's not until that happens that the path of freedom is broken wide. And it's the same in our life. We'll not find freedom until we utterly surrender to God. And it won't happen tomorrow and the next day. It'll happen over and over and over again. Because God knows the beginning and the end. He has all of your life in his hands. And he's asking you to do one thing. Surrender to him. So that he can free you from sin and from self and from your own stupidity. So how are you used by God? You humble yourself before him. You do your best to exercise patience because God's timing is his own. And you completely surrender yourself to God. And then you find yourself and you find freedom. That's the story of the Exodus. In large part, it's the story of Moses' life and the story of the people of God. And it's a lesson that is ancient and contemporary. You know, it might sound like a hard way to live. It might sound like a scary way to live. But God says it's the only way to live.
Let's pray. Lord, I give you thanks uh, for your sovereign grace in our life. I thank, that, thank you that you are so uh, utterly sovereign, that your, your ways are beyond our comprehension, your thoughts are so far above us that we cannot understand, and yet you communicate with divine simplicity over and over again when you ask us to surrender. And then you promise over and over again that you will birth freedom out of the surrender to your will. Lord, I, I thank you um, for calling us. Those of us who call upon your name and know you, Lord, our name might not be Moses, but Lord, we know you called us. We might not be as humble as we need to be. But when we reflect on the fact that you called us, we're humbled. We confess, Lord, that we just have a hard time with patience because your timing never seems to be our timing. So we pray for the grace to have patience with your timing. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us this counterintuitive, countercultural theme named surrender. Surrender that creates freedom. So we pray, Lord, you will help us to surrender uh, to your will. And Lord, as we uh, conclude uh, this morning, I want to pause uh, just for a moment to allow us to hear from you. Sometimes you do come in the thunder, in the fire, but as your prophet reminded us also, you come in just a still, small voice or whisper. So Lord, for the next few minutes, Please do that for us. Come to us in the silences. Give us faith. Give us hope. Teach us how to surrender. And let us know what to do. Lord, in that short moment of silence, all some of us may have heard was silence. And as we acknowledged earlier, that doesn't mean you're absent. As we continue to wait in silence before you, we pray that you will prepare us for the unseen. Prepare our hearts to hear your voice and to act. For some of us, Lord, in that silence, some things became clear. A direction, a word to be spoken, a command to be silent, or a surrender to be made.
We pray, Lord, that you will give us the grace to follow you. And then remind us of this promise. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, both now and forevermore. Amen.